So this evening, I'm going to explore with you, uh, starting with my uh, a poem I wrote this afternoon uh, called The Medicine Pouch. Hesitantly, standing between worlds, the gate is open, dear heart. What kind of medicine are you carrying in your pouch, pilgrim? Turkey feathers? Lizard's tails? A worm's body? A small brush of deer hair? A ray from the full moon? A tattered picture of Shangri-La? Is it enough, these few things, to stand by the high tide without being swept by the tsunami of your life? Buddha whispered from that deep place within, medicine pouch full, you're enough. These few things, enough. Opening your whole body, heart, to the deep water pulling you out into the world. Everything held in this original ordinariness, a picture frame bigger than the cosmos. Hesitantly, standing between worlds, the gate is open, dear heart. What kind of medicine are you carrying in your pouch, pilgrim? So I'd like to just explore with you the uh, practices that are held so dearly by our community and uh, what can uh, support you as things that you hold in your medicine bag besides the turkey feathers and the Uh, lizard's tails and uh, uh, deer brush hair. Uh, A ray from the moon. Uh, Traditionally in Asia, when meditation practice is taught, uh, the first thing that's uh, held as a a lofty and a practice of great happiness is uh, this practice of dana, of generosity. And I think sometimes if uh, we're being pulled back into the world, if there is one thing that uh, if you could do daily, if you could hold uh, in your uh, mind heart, and uh, as Gil talked last night about this really a a view and intention and action, is that if we could hold this dana, this uh, ability to take this heart and fearlessly uh, move into the world uh, with an open hand in the sense of uh, some of the simplest uh, giving of resources or our time 
or a good word that in some ways I think of it as something that you'll always come back here. Uh, You'll always come back with this act. In my first year uh, in Asia, after I'd been there a year, I, uh, there was a teacher that I would go and see with uh, my friend. Her, her name was Joan Ewing then, but she became a, actually the first nun uh, known as uh, Sultram Alion now. And uh, we went up because I was going on a pilgrimage into India, and uh, I was going to leave everything behind and become someone else. Uh, that practice of uh, pilgrimage. And I didn't have much money in those days, but uh, this was an important act. And I remember going and kind of getting my zip bag with my passport and my driver's checks and going downtown and getting this money uh, to take up to uh, the venerable. Uh, And the whole practice was just for me, was remembering that I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing, and that somehow uh, there was uh, an act that I could do uh, that somehow would loosen my grip. And I remember going up and giving the money and going away, and and, uh, that evening uh, this sense of uh, fearlessness came over me and happiness and saying, oh, I can do this. Uh, I don't have. I don't need to know. You know. Uh, our first and uh, most profound practice. This is uh, for the Majiva Nikaya. A person who gives freely is loved by all. It's hard to understand, but it is by giving that we gain strength. But there is a proper time and a proper way to give. And the person who understands this is strong and wise. By giving with a feeling of reverence for life, envy and anger are banished. A path to happiness is found, like one who plants a sapling and in due course receives shade, flowers, and fruit. So the results of giving bring joy. The way there is through continuous acts of kindness so that all that the heart in itself is strengthened by compassion and giving. I remember my, also my first years when I was back and uh, struggling to what, find find a place. I had left this culture, and not that I had a, a place in it anyway. <laughs> but I think coming back from so many years in Asia, I had less of a place even, and. Uh, at the time, I was sort of a, I guess you could say, kind of retreat junkie type. 
And I went down to uh, Santa Barbara and Ruth Dennison, who will be here in, in, uh, what, in 10 days or less, actually, uh, who was in her, who was one of the great, uh, really, Dharma heirs. And I went to a 10-day retreat there, and, and uh, one of the things that I had at that time, I was in the first kind of Dharma people with a child, and so uh, being gypsies, we didn't really know what else to do, so we took our son Ty to uh, the retreat. And uh, one person uh, volunteered to come down and take care of Ty, who was probably about six or eight months old, and that was Sylvia Borstein. And I remember her kindness so much in a sense of taking time out of her retreat uh, to come down and, and play with this uh, six-month-old and uh, give us time to go and sit. There's so many ways that uh, we can uh, find ways to kind of share ourselves uh, in this community, in uh, your families and friends that bring you back to practice. Uh, I think sometimes, how did you get here? How did you get here? Mysterious, magical thing. But this kind of first practice, uh, in my mind, is that that it's an action that loosens our grip and allows the Dharma then uh, to work through things so that we can arrive as we arrive here in this place, at this particular place and time, this full moon. This has such wide implications as uh, this retreat comes to an end and how you, uh, in your medicine bag, uh, go out into the world and take, actually, this is, this is, I'm talking about really a simple power here that will bring you direct uh, joy and happiness and also mimics the work you've been doing for this one or two months. In Asia, one of my, uh, maybe one of my, in sense shortcoming, I'm very much an introvert and uh, in a way shy and kind of try to stay out of uh, big scenes. And of course, India is a big scene. <laughs> and you can't avoid it. And I had a friend, Monty, who uh, loved people and was uh, really a, a, a fearless wonder, traffic kind of uh, sadhu type, who uh, we would go sometimes and, and go to Calcutta from Bodhgaya, where we'd spend the winter in. Uh, to change money. And one of his uh, gifts was 
that fearlessness was would go down on uh, by the big market there, and he would kind of collect up all the beggars from the corners <laughs> and uh, bring them for tea and, and cookies. And I remember you'd get in a tea shop and you'd have about you know 20 of mostly guys, uh, and they would all cram in, and, and one of the things that was always uh, that actually moved my heart was the lepers who they would had their hands covered and may not have fingers or nostrils or ears missing or whatever toes you know but one of the things was that as a westerner um, and they are untouchables uh, that they liked to touch and so they would sit and, and I would sit over in the corner and one of the things was they'd come over and they'd kind of get close and, and it was okay that they could touch me. You know. And so much would go through my mind about uh, how uh, reticent and what was this ability to kind of, in the sense of um, when Anna talked about Milarepa and the demon and the big metal demon and opening and surrendering, and uh, kind of giving oneself. Great teacher, you know. So it's not always in ways you think, but as you move into the world uh, to keep that uh, recognition that this is a practice that you have to uh, remember to do. The same way the second of these practices uh, has to do with, uh, as we came here for a month or two months, one of the things was we took these five precepts uh, as a way to hold the community in safety. And so as you move into the world and begin to allow the marketplace, uh, in a sense, uh, it comes to you, you come to it, uh, that exchange that happens in the marketplace, that uh, these precepts uh, become practices. Uh, They're not always uh, so visible. And they're not something that's written in stone in some uh, fashion that holds you in uh, right or wrong. But in something that's an inquiry, an exploration of uh, uh, what is non-harming? What is this practice of uh, touching the world in a safe way? And those that you care for and those that maybe you don't care so much for. Uh, It's still... Uh, necessary to kind of frame these things. And for myself, I know uh, one of the things, there's a possibility of really framing them in positive terms, in the sense of uh, we've been here for a month or two months, and just looking at the life that lives in this valley, this, in a sense, sometimes I think of it as this, uh, you know, Shangri-La, for the creatures, the, the turkeys and the deer, 
And uh, even I noticed the lizards uh, have a sense of fearlessness that kind of sit and uh, know we're not here in the sense of interference. Uh, And that's been passed on. I've watched the deer over the years where it's passed on from mother to fawn. And then that fawn grows up and passes that same uh, safety uh, on uh, to the next generation. And so this valley is filled with this uh, practice uh, of non-harming. And that our respect, our deep respect for life, and there's the deep respect in the individual sense, but also as we go out into the world, uh, where we stand, uh, or we stand in our our sense of politics on uh, uh, diversity issues, on war, uh, on uh, so many issues that are uh, necessary to not just hold our own safety, but the whole safety of the society. And um, sometimes what it hurts me so deeply is to think of a young man, uh, 18 years old, even if he has a long, you know, a rifle that he can shoot somebody at 500 yards, and that uh, he kills someone with that rifle. And that somehow we support that in, as a culture. And then... Uh, this person comes home. And from we know from going so deep that that psyche is so deeply disturbed. And so our job is also to recognize that we have responsibility, not only in ourselves, but in the collective, with these precepts of uh, holding the non-harming and the safety. This one of not taking what is not given. Uh, Again, uh, a piece around safety that we understand. But a complexity with corporations and such a a huge, um, phenomenally complex world we live in. And that we have to keep, you know, we're going to make mistakes. And that we keep inquiring and studying things and keep using these... uh, inquiries, these practices, as a way to find the kind of dharma in our lives. Uh, Sexuality, I mean, what a, it's a a wonderful part of humanity. And also, of course, we all know the country western songs and the, uh, you know, uh, all the the pain uh, that also goes with sexuality and how here it comes and we see and experience sometimes the, uh, the, uh, the power of sometimes pulling you out uh, of the present. And uh, for me, so much uh, of that experience was so much about, I had a retreat where I had all this lust and at the same time I had someone I was really angry with. And I would sit and these two parts of me would come up. But what I noticed was there was no peace. What there was was the burning. And in many ways, the burning was not different. It was not peace. 
uh, even though they were uh, different. The speech you stepped in today or yesterday. Mm. Powerful, powerful. I like the whole ideal behind it that somehow communication itself uh, is compassion. Uh, our, in sense, our need to connect and that it carries that possibility uh, simply in the nature of contact. And that it is also a practice and something that has to be, uh, we have to learn to, uh, the skills of being truthful, being helpful, being kind, not kind of falling into negativity or gossip or kind of passive-aggressive, to be timely in when we speak to others. Uh, It also is a great and wondrous practice that we have to begin to explore and step into uh, and recognize uh, how you can take this uh, very simple practice of body and wakefulness and mindfulness uh, into speech and also to be careful with the our minds in the sense of, uh, you know, just the, a culture that's so caught up in, in uh, ways to sort of uh, well, well, in some ways uh, diminish uh, the truth and find some escape uh, culture that holds so many kinds of addictions particularly around drugs and alcohol, and uh, probably pornography and uh, TV and, uh, you know, I don't know, harming your body as well as your mind, <coughs> junk food, etc. So this is also a practice. This is part of the fundamentals of Uh, in your kind of medicine bag that you can take out with you and hold you in a way that will then bring this practice that you've been practicing here uh, in your own container, in your own uh, living situation. Uh, It's important. One of the things I remember very young Manindra would say how uh, I didn't care particularly for the precepts. I I thought, you know, my 20s, eh, I don't need that. You know, and uh, but as I've gotten older, I've realized that uh, to hold those precepts is the the most basic ground for a mind that then can focus and sustain attention to really find what we know as 
the kind of the beginnings practice, this third kind of practice that's in this medicine pouch that we'll take out with us. And this practice of concentration has been uh, saving grace uh, in living in the world that uh, I was, when I was thinking about this this afternoon, I was thinking about uh, how uh, when my daughter, she was about four years old, named Pema, and uh, I was a closet meditator. So I would go in the closet and shut the door, and, <laughs> and that's, that's where I was. The only thing was, and I got up before everybody, before I went to work and stuff. And, and, um, but she was an early riser. So she would come in, and she would, um, she's an extrovert. So she would come in, and she would stand in front of me while I was sitting, and it was my time, and she would talk to me. You know, just talk to me, talk to me, and talk to me. And it would go on and on and on. I would sit there, and I would end up just counting my breaths, you know, <laughs> over and over again to kind of <laughs> keep that sanity. Many times she'd just end up sitting in my lap when she got, you know, bored enough to realize I wasn't going to move. Uh, uh, but this practice of concentration was so helpful. I also must say that uh, uh, there was a, I was at a 30-day retreat in, once in Benares, and there was the Burmese Vihara, which had once been in fields all around it, and there had been rice fields, etc., around it. But as the city had grown, and also the British came along and put the railroad, uh, you know, really uh, several, uh, you know, 100 yards away from it, that here was this enclosed vihar, this uh, sort of pilgrimage place for uh, Buddhist pilgrims. And there was this 30-day retreat that went on there. And as soon as we got the first night, we realized that at night, because of the train station, uh, there were these broken uh, loudspeakers that uh, would play Hindi music. (laughs) And then go on all night long with announcements. <laughs> and outside the walls, there was sort of the tea shops and the, the um, you know, people being born and dying and, and uh, you know, just the way India is. <laughs> so, here you are in this Shangri-La Valley. But even there, uh, as soon as the body settles, uh, and there is this possibility of concentration, uh, even in the midst of chaos, uh, it is not just due to the pristine nature of uh, this kind of atmosphere. So it's something you can take, take into your home. You may live by uh, you know, uh, a freeway or, or a railroad station and trains go by. The mind can hold it all and find that place that can uh, rest. There's a wonderful piece, and I, I thought of this 
Uh, it's from the 6th century from the Tiantai Mountains in China called the Qi. If we are practicing right meditation, there will come into development and manifestation all kinds of meritorious qualities. The body will become light and transparent, fresh and pure. Our minds will become happy and joyous, tranquil and serene. Hindrances to our practice will disappear, and good thoughts will spring up to help us. Our respect for the practice will increase. Our faith in it will deepen. Our powers of understanding and wisdom will become clear and trustworthy. Both our body and mind will become sensitive and flexible. Our thoughts will be less superficial and more profound. So many of you here in this month or two months know what that what that is. There's also the power here that is taking us into the world is this, uh, first of all, this power of breath. And one of the wonderful practices uh, is actually has to do with the uh, supporting factors here of remembering. And I know many times I've sort of been in the kind of supermarket and walking through, and, and uh, I've gotten in line, and you know somebody has uh, kind of broken in line in front of me, and I have to appointment, and I have to be somewhere, and there's this choice that we have, and that choice is whether I'm going to, you know, get anxious, and uh, really go into this uh, as uh, Anatak, the papancha, the uh, kind of this mental proliferation. Or we can choose, because we have trained ourselves in the breath, that a moment we can choose uh, that breathing. Uh, This ability to pause and hold really the fruit of our efforts here. And it can inform us. This mindfulness can inform us. what is anxiousness and what is peace? Uh, we also, in this mindfulness, there's the breath, there's also uh, the body. Uh, there's the noting of pleasant or unpleasant in the body. Uh, there are the states, the emotions, these mind heart states that we know as our kind of feelings that arise. Uh, there are the thoughts themselves that we've been training here in. And they become things in this medicine pouch that uh, need to be supported with uh, uh, daily practice, with uh, community, and sense of finding uh, a way to Uh, bring that sense of sangha and support uh, into our lives more and more.
you're going to forget. The concentration will wane. That's its nature. It is due to causes and conditions. But at the same time, uh, the deepening that's happened here, this constantly coming back and uh, this remembering that's been going on, uh, can begin to be trusted. It is enough, these few things, to stand by the high tide without being swept by the tsunami of our life. Busy place out there. But you have the power uh, to pause, the power to recognize that uh, you choose the gap. And it certainly takes a a remembering, which may be, you know, uh, you know, I think sometimes just if you can't write it on your forehead, you could write it on your hand. You could have stickums that you put in your car. Uh, You could. If you work in an office, you could remember to uh, take several times during the day uh, to stop and maybe do walking meditation to the bathroom and back. There's so many choices to uh, bring this into the activity of your life. Uh, It is not meant to be separate. Uh, It is meant to be something that supports uh, this remembering. This is... uh, Actually, Ken Wilbur's wife, late uh, wife. My personal theory is you don't have to make an effort to change or stop a certain behavior you don't like. In fact, effort gets in the way. The important thing is to see it clearly, to observe it, to observe all its aspects, to just witness it. And every time it arises and you see it, It doesn't catch you by surprise. The change is not a question of will. Will is necessary to cultivate awareness of the problem, defect or hang-up. But it often gets gets in the way of the kind of subtle, profound inner change. That kind of change moves us in a direction of a way that's beyond our understanding and certainly beyond our capacity to consciously will it. It's more of an allowing, an opening, like grace. Buddha whispered, 
from that deep place within. Medicine pouch full. You're enough. These few things, enough. Opening your whole body, heart, to the deep water, pulling you out into the world. There is a possibility here as the mind learns to uh, know uh, kind of all the objects of seeing and smelling and tasting and hearing and thoughts. Uh, This capacity to make friends and and know, in a sense, the dharma of how they work. There's also this possibility also of simply... Loosening our grip on all of it. Uh, Holding it in a different context. You're enough. These few things are enough. Open your whole body and heart the deep water pulling you out into the world. So it comes to this trust that we've been working on. Uh, This trust that we're enough and that these practices, as uh, in a sense as simple as they are, and go as deep as you need to go, They're not just for here. They're something that like the medicine pouch uh, around your neck you carry uh, with you. So the fourth of these practices that you carry out with you in your medicine pouch, this uh, practice of Donna, this practice of really uh, giving uh, of yourself, of your time, your resources, your beingness, uh, kind of holding the safety uh, of the world for yourself and others. And these practices that you have, uh, in the sense of meditation, you've worked uh, so hard on, that it's also uh, this uh, trust 
that you don't know, you don't need to know what's ahead of you at this point. Uh, it's okay, you've trained yourself uh, to be here. And that I'm sure there's so much of this planning mind that's, you know, already having your latte or, you know, or um, whatever it is that has captured the future. Can you give it away? No. It's not that it's not about not arriving. It's just that you are here. So, so much of that trust is uh, about clarity of mind and this wisdom of uh, the kind of empty phenomena is that it rises and passes moment after moment in just here. There's also a flavor to that. So I thought I'd read to you, this is from four and eight-year-olds. And the question is, what is love? When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even though his hands got arthritis too. That's love. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Love is that first feeling you feel before all the bad stuff gets in the way. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. It's <laughs> a great one. Love is when someone hurts you and you get so mad but you don't yell at them because you know it would hurt their feelings. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. If you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. (laughs) When you tell something bad about yourself, and you're scared they won't love you anymore. But then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. I'll just read a couple more here. This is Lauren, age four. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes (laughs) and has to go out and buy new ones. This is Bethany, also, age four. 
I let my big sister pick on me because my mom says she only picks on me because she loves me. <laughs> so I pick on my baby sister because I love her. <laughs> so just starting from the first night that Jack talked about the two wings of awakening, this one that is about wisdom and uh, kind of holds this practice of mindfulness and clarity, in a sense, uh, is the formless. Uh, it is that statement that uh, Srinasari Goth talked about in the sense that uh, wisdom tells me I'm nothing and love tells me I'm everything. And somewhere between the two, my life flows. When we practice, and uh, just in its naturalness, when that, uh, in a sense, that uh, wisdom uh, collides with truth, then the recognition of the form. And one of the things is form is something uh, we experience here, but sometimes not, uh, but... Uh, we have to walk and step into a world uh, that is a complexity of the form. And to experience and see it clearly uh, for what it is, uh, sometimes I think it just simply will break your heart uh, to see it clearly, to see the kind of greed, hatred, and delusion and how it keeps spinning and holds us. And yet, at the same time, we have a choice here. We have this choice. Uh, In this choice, many of you have been doing this practice of loving-kindness, of of like the rain uh, earlier this week, that that metta, that saturation of going down into the bone. And sometimes, even though it's a sometimes purification practice and has uh, opposite effects in the sense of purification, uh, what is its aim? What is uh, being allowed to drop in to this body-mind? Uh, using the mind to direct uh, into the heart. If we really saw clearly, uh, we wouldn't need this practice, I believe because it would naturally uh, break the heart open uh, to see how we act uh, to each other in the world. But being things as they are, then we can use this practice, uh, whether it's you use it just to begin your sitting or to end your sitting, uh, or something that uh, I love to do is driving, metta driving practice. 
is a wonderful practice because it's a place where uh, people can hide behind the metal and the speed. In grocery stores, uh, in places where uh, streets and places where there's fear. It is in your medicine pouch a very powerful tool. that shows you this wing of awakening, uh, this one recognition that uh, Wangdor, uh, Lama Wangdor talked about, the, that the emptiness uh, has love. Uh, these are not separate things, uh, but they are also uh, like the turkey feathers or lizard tails, they are different things in the pouch, in the medicine pouch, that you can always call uh, and use. Mm. So those are the four. Uh, These four practices that Uh, There are many, many practices. These are ones that uh, I feel we hold dearly uh, in their simplicity for our way of uh, working in the world. And that uh, all four of these uh, are also powers uh, that uh, can bring you back into uh, this last line, everything held in the original ordinariness, a picture frame bigger than the cosmos, that the mind can turn back on itself uh, and see that somehow uh, it's not, this is not about specialness. This is really about the ordinariness of uh, how we choose to experience. A majority of the time we get lost in the objects of experience, whether it's the seeing or tasting or smelling or our thoughts. There's also the ease. You know, and it's not uh, this, the word, you know, sometimes is so tricky, I think, that using these words, luminous mind, you know, uh, like the moon, full moon out there. But the full moon uh, looking up uh, is part of that uh, ordinariness. This is, this is it. So with this ability to have this ease and uh, awareness of relaxation, Uh, then uh, there's no limit. Uh, There's no limit to who you are. This is from Agnes Di Maio. Living 
is a form of not being sure, of not knowing what's next or how. The moment you know how, you begin to die a little. We guess. We may be wrong, but we take a leap after leap in the dark. So I'll end here with my poem for this full moon. The medicine pouch. Hesitantly, standing between worlds, the gate is open, dear heart. What kind of medicine are you carrying in your pouch, pilgrim? Turkey feathers, lizard's tails, a worm's body, a small brush of deer hair, a ray from the full moon, a tattered picture of Shangri-La. Is it enough, these few things, to stand by the high tide without being swept by the tsunami of your life? Buddha whispered from that deep place within. Medicine pouch full. You are enough. These few things enough. Opening your whole body, heart, to the deep water, pulling you out into the world. Everything held in the original ordinariness a picture frame bigger than the cosmos. So let's sit for a moment. Turkey feathers, lizard tails, a worm's body, a small brush of deer hair, a ray from the full moon, a tattered picture of Shangri-La. It is enough, these few things. This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock on March 24, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.